I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. LASIK surgery reduces dependency on glasses or contact lenses. Why is the FDA planning to issue new warnings? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. An estimated 700,000 LASIK surgeries are performed each year in the U.S. The manufacturers of equipment and the doctors who perform it report 90 to 95 percent patient satisfaction with the procedure. But some people report serious complications following LASIK surgery. We'll get a range of viewpoints, including one from the person who oversaw the initial FDA approval. Who's a good candidate and who should avoid this procedure? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, the pros and cons of LASIK surgery. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, during the COVID-19 pandemic, precautions against COVID also reduced the spread of other respiratory infections. This year, they've come roaring back. One type of infection that's causing particular problems is streptococcus, also known as strep throat. The most severe group A strep infections can become invasive and cause big trouble beyond the throat. Both toxic shock and necrotizing fasciitis are consequences of invasive infections. Without adequate treatment, these can lead to hospitalization or death. The increase in Group A strep has taken drug manufacturers by surprise. As a result, there have been shortages of the antibiotic most commonly used to treat strep throat and other strep infections. That drug of choice is amoxicillin, and the shortages mostly affect pediatric formulations, the pink liquid. According to Aaron Fox, medication policy researcher at the University of Utah, these shortages are due to a mismatch between what is available and what is needed. The FDA list of drug shortages suggests that some amoxicillin shortages will ease in May and June, and most should be over by October. But that still leaves lots of parents having to call numerous pharmacies to fill an antibiotic prescription for a sick child right now. It's estimated that one half of all adults have high blood pressure. That's more than 115 million Americans. If lifestyle changes such as weight loss or exercise don't bring hypertension under control, healthcare professionals usually recommend pharmacotherapy. But which drugs work best to control high blood pressure? A new Swedish study published in JAMA found that one size does not fit all. The researchers recruited 270 men and women with hypertension. Each participant received four different types of blood pressure-lowering medications over seven- to nine-week treatment periods. One of the medications was lisinopril, known as an ACE inhibitor. The volunteers also tested a diuretic called hydrochlorothiazide. A calcium channel blocker called amlodipine was also included in this crossover test.
Finally, an angiotensin receptor blocker, or ARB, called candesartan, was part of the four-drug test protocol. During each treatment period, the participants were monitored with a 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure device. It gathered measurements every 20 minutes during daytime and every hour at night. The investigators discovered that there was tremendous variability in drug effectiveness between individuals. In other words, people responded differently to antihypertensive medications. The authors speculate that patients might benefit if prescribers personalized antihypertensive therapy by determining which individuals would benefit most from which medications. Regaining functional capacity after a stroke can be a big challenge. The medical journal JAMA Neurology has just published a study of optimal training intensity among 55 stroke survivors who were still having difficulties walking six months later. The researchers assigned half the participants to moderate-intensity training and half to high-intensity interval training. All the volunteers walked for 45 minutes three times a week for 12 weeks. Those in the high-intensity group walked as fast as safely possible for 30 seconds with 30 to 60 seconds between bursts. They strove for a heart rate at 60% of maximum. The investigators measured how far participants could walk in six minutes at several points in the study, after four weeks, eight weeks, and 12 weeks. The results showed that vigorous walking was already producing important improvement at four weeks, but it took 12 weeks for patients to maximize their progress. When the FDA approved two new medications to reduce beta amyloid accumulation in the brain, many neuroscientists hailed this as an advance against Alzheimer's disease. A new discovery raises questions about the long-term benefits. A systematic review and meta-analysis of 31 clinical trials involving anti-amyloid drugs found brain shrinkage. This is usually linked to worsening dementia. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Today, we're going to present a wide range of perspectives on a common eye procedure called LASIK surgery. It stands for laser-assisted in situ keratomalusis. That's a procedure that changes the shape of the cornea to reduce dependency on glasses or contact lenses. The FDA approved LASIK in 1999, and since then, over 10 million people have had this eye surgery. It costs anywhere from $1,000 to $4,000 an eye. The makers of LASIK equipment and the doctors who perform the procedure estimate that 90 to 95% of patients are satisfied with the outcome. There is controversy, however. The FDA has recently proposed a new draft guidance to make sure prospective patients are aware of potential complications. To learn more about the pros and cons of LASIK eye surgery, we start with Dr. Morris Waxler. Later in the show, we'll talk with a patient, an optometrist, and an ophthalmologist to get a range of perspectives on this common procedure. 
Dr. Waxler was the branch chief at the FDA from 1996 to 2000. He oversaw the original approval of the devices used for LASIK surgery in the U.S. In 2011, Dr. Waxler petitioned the FDA to issue a public health advisory regarding LASIK injuries. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Morris Waxler. Well, thank you for uh, welcoming me. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Waxler, you worked for the Food and Drug Administration from the late 90s to about 2000, and you were very actively involved in the approval of something called LASIK surgery and the devices that were used for it. Why did you initially feel so comfortable about approving LASIK surgery? Well, a little correction. I worked for FDA uh, uh, related to LASIK for actually from about 1990 to 2000 or 1998. So a little correction. I wouldn't say I was really comfortable um, approving LASIK. There's a long history, a uh, very, very fraught history. Surgeons, uh, ophthalmic surgeons began using uh various lasers to do uh, and actually building lasers to shape the cornea uh, as early as the late uh, 1988, 89. And they were doing it illegally, basically. And so uh, it was a fraught situation to begin with. So we have to start with that. But eventually, the Food and Drug Administration did approve LASIK surgery, did it not? It indeed it did. Absolutely. And you were part of that process. So initially, you were on board, at least enough to say, give them the green light. True enough, um, except that initially, the, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, we, including myself, shut down the illegal operators of LASIK. Uh, and then we were forced into negotiations with the, I should say, we, the FDA, was forced into negotiations with the refractive surgeons uh, about how to go forward with this uh, uh, approval. So there were a long series of of hearings. Um, So there were serious questions. So again, the problems that eventually have shown uh, to be the case were the problems all along the way. So uh, I just want to make it clear that there there was a lot of discomfort but the FDA was in a position to uh, either go to court, which it didn't want to, or to approve LASIK. Now, Dr. Wexler, as we understand it, you have definitely changed your position, and you have actually gone on record asking the FDA to change its position. Would you tell us why, please? Well, I left the Food and Drug Administration in, in 2000, and I went to work for a large uh, law firm having nothing to do with LASIK or other kinds of regulatory issues. But in, uh, I think, probably 2001 or 2002, uh, pay, uh, LASIK patients started calling me and really complaining very, very loudly that they were suffering from pain and distortions and all sorts of problems. So I said, wow. Uh, so I listened to them, and then I reexamined what we had done at the Food and Drug Administration, and I and I talked to my 
former colleagues and I said, we need to do something about this. And they've essentially said, get lost. And uh, so that's when I petitioned the agency. And that petition was what, what year, 2011? And what did you ask the FDA to change when it came to LASIK surgery? What, what was your hope? Well, I was hoping that they would re-examine uh, the issue and, and, uh, and actually, at the very least, provide additional warning uh, to patients. Um, um, finally, after many years, 2023, it looks like the agency is at least trying to provide uh, customers with uh, proper information. Uh, the, the, the basic problem is not only is, is it harmful, when customers come in to a, a LASIK clinic, they're not told the truth. They're not told that they have healthy eyes and that their eyes, they're not even, they're not patients until they have the surgery. They have healthy eyes. LASIK is approved for only for healthy eyes. So they become unhealthy once they have the surgery. And the LASIK surgeons know this. They don't tell them that they're going to have a weakened eye, an eye that has all of its nerves cut, that never regrow properly, uh, that have distortions. They don't tell them that they have a 30% a thirty chance of having chronic pain, chronic distortions, uh, potential bulging of the cornea. They, they provide an informed consent document that is long and obscure, uh, mostly to protect the surgeons, not to provide information to the, to the customers. Now, Dr. Wexler, between 2011, when you filed your petition, and 2023, when the FDA issued a statement of warning, it's a long time. It is a long time. Do you have time. any idea why the FDA took so long to act? Well, in order for uh, I finally realized in order for the, the FDA to act in this matter, the, the FDA has to admit that it was wrong. Uh, the FDA has to admit what I'm telling you now, that they were under duress to actually approve LASIK. They were threatened with lawsuits by very wealthy uh, ophthalmologists and basically were in a corner. Uh, and uh, so uh, they don't want to admit that. In, in addition, they have a, a lot of compromises. I don't know if you're aware, but the, the leadership of the of the Center for Devices and Radiological Health have connections to the LASIK industry, so it's uh, it's incestuous. Uh, so yes, they 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 cannot admit they made a mistake. They have no way to uh, admit that without having a lot more trouble. I, I understand it, Doctor Wexler. At the time we're talking with you about the FDA's new cautions. They haven't been implemented yet. They're, they're up for, for review right. and for comment by both the public at large as well as by the manufacturers of the equipment and the um, ophthalmological surgeons, the, the eye doctors who actually are going who do the procedure. And so we're still kind of waiting at this particular time for what will eventually occur. 
what is the FDA proposing in the way of warnings? And I suspect there's a lot of pushback from both the industry and from the medical profession. Uh, well, the FDA's proposal is pretty modest, actually. All they're doing, all they're asking the surgeons to do, and the and the equipment manufacturers is to tell the the customers the truth. But the customer, the the LASIK surgeons don't want to say that because all what they'd have to tell the the customers are your ha- eyes are perfectly healthy. We're going to cut them, and we're going to cut all the nerves. The nerves are not going to grow back properly. And you're likely going to have a very weak cornea. So uh, come in and have surgery. Pay $2,000 and have surgery. Customers wouldn't come in for that. So the FDA's proposal is really quite modest. Uh, despite the modest proposal, the, the surgeons in particular are, are essentially threatening uh, lawsuits. They're threatening to sue the agency. They did that before. That's why we're here now. And they'll do it again. Dr. Waxler, what would you advise patients who are listening to us and considering LASIK surgery in the future? Remember, your eyes are healthy. If you, uh, you have an optical problem, glasses work perfectly fine. You will not, they, will not, they do not damage your eyes. Contact lenses. They have some issues, but you can always remove the contact lenses if you have problems. So once you cut your eyeball, that's done. You cannot get it back. Once you make a slice through that, that cornea, you've cut the nerves. They are not going to grow back normally. And when they remove the tissue that they need to remove to make your cornea flattened, that tissue is forever gone. Your eye is no longer a normal eye, your eye is no longer a safe eye. Your eye is is sick. So don't do it. Dr. Morris Waxler, thank you very much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Morris Waxler. As the branch chief at the FDA from 1996 to 2000, he oversaw the original approval of devices used for LASIK surgery in the U.S., In 2011, Dr. Waxler petitioned the FDA to issue a public health advisory on LASIK injuries. After the break, we'll hear from a patient about her experience with an undesirable outcome from LASIK surgery. How did she make the decision to have LASIK? What was the aftermath? She'll tell us about her efforts to get her problems rectified. We'll also hear how her vision is now and what she told the FDA in her testimony. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. Cocoa flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product 
by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia. And remember that discount code is PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance in one capsule. More information is available at cocovia.com. The People's Pharmacy is also supported by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. Today, we're talking about the pros and cons of LASIK surgery, which is designed to reduce a person's dependence on eyeglasses or contact lenses. We're bringing you a wide range of perspectives about this procedure. We turn now to Paula Kofer. She suffered long-term complications from LASIK surgery. In 2008, she served as the patient representative at an FDA advisory panel meeting. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Paula Kofer. Hi, thanks for having me. Paula, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you made the decision to have LASIK surgery and then what it was like afterwards. I decided to have LASIK because um, I was a very active person. I did scuba diving, uh, worked out at a gym every day. I was just very busy and very active, and I felt like um, having LASIK and no longer uh, having to fool with glasses and contact lenses would be a big benefit. So uh, my sister had had it a year before, and initially she was happy with it, and it just seemed like a no-brainer. Um, after the surgery, however, even on day one, I knew something wasn't right. Uh, I was having some problems with my right eye, and um, then when I ventured out at night, I was completely blown away by the horrible images I was seeing at night, massive starbursts, halos, multiple images. Um, So I knew something wasn't right. So you must have gone to see the surgeon. What did he say? Well, I tried to get in to see the surgeon. I was always booked with an optometrist who worked for the surgeon. It was very difficult to actually see the surgeon. I finally did manage to get in to see him, but there was quite a bit of time that passed that I was shuffled back to the optometrist. Um, But he just told me to give it time. He said it could take, well, originally I was told that the problems I was experiencing could take up to three months to resolve. And once I finally was able to speak to the surgeon, he extended that to one year. It could take up to one year to resolve. But they never, none, none of it resolved. It, I never, I never improved. I wonder if you could describe what you mean by starburst and halos uh, for, for people who have not gone through this and don't know what you're talking about. 
Could you describe it in a little more detail and how it affected your life? The starbursts that I saw were, <laughs> the best way to, to describe it, I suppose, is like a firework going off, just the rays emanating from a light source and obscuring anything around it. And halos were like a glow around all illuminated objects. If um, if I was driving at night, which I eventually had to stop doing, but uh, for example, if you're approaching a stop sign and your headlights are reflecting off the stop sign, then the stop sign itself would seem to glow like there was a an imaginary stop sign surrounding the stop sign. I know that sounds crazy and bizarre, but you have to realize that LASIK does something so unnatural to the cornea that light rays are just doing all sorts of crazy things as they enter the eye. They're they're passing through the very center of the cornea that was treated. And then if you have um, large pupils like I do, the light rays are also passing through the portion of the cornea that wasn't treated. So you almost have these superimposing images and uh, it's just horrific. It's, it's <laughs> to try to describe what that felt like back then. Um, it was, it was horrible. It was, it pulled the rug of life out from under me. Paula, I assume that you have made a lot of efforts to see what could be done to fix the problem. Can you tell us about that, please? Oh my goodness, yes. I there is nothing I wouldn't have done. There's no place I wouldn't have gone. There's no amount of money I wouldn't have spent to try to find a solution to this. I poured all of my energy into looking for a solution in that first couple of years. I used to go sit at the uh, local university medical library and read ophthalmology journals. And I would read FDA clinical trials for LASIK online. And I studied and taught myself ophthalmology jargon. I learned everything I could learn about LASIK and what the treatment does to the eye. And I was determined to find the solution. Uh, I was just I was going to be that person that found the answer, got my eyes fixed, and then went on with life. But um, that never happened. The more I learned about LASIK, the more I realized it's a one-way street. There's no going back. There's no fixing it. How is your vision now, Paula? My vision is very bad now. It's it's much worse, in fact, uh, because over time I've developed more complications, which I believe are, were caused by LASIK. For example, it's there are scientific papers, peer-reviewed papers that have proven that LASIK patients need cataract surgery up to 15 years before they normally would, before a normal person that hasn't had LASIK would. And I do have uh, cataracts. I was diagnosed with early cataracts about two years after my surgery. So those have gotten progressively worse over time. I also had a ton of new floaters after LASIK, and that eventually progressed to uh, posterior vitreous detachment in both eyes, and it left scar tissue on the retina of one of my eyes. So my vision has just gotten worse and worse. Paul, I understand that you've started a Facebook group for people with LASIK complications. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, so, you know, after this happened to me, 
I just felt like I had a moral obligation to share what I had learned. And um, I also felt like somebody just had to pull the curtain back on this industry. And I wanted to do what I could to help prevent this from happening to other families. And the reason I say families is this doesn't just affect the patient. This affects the families. It affects the spouses, the, the siblings, the children. And um, it's just heartbreaking, some of these stories. And I channeled all of my energy into raising awareness and um, eventually started the Facebook group. And um, it's grown to about 8,000 people at this point. Now, Paula, a lot of the physicians who do this surgery, the ophthalmologists who do this, and the manufacturers of the equipment say it's very rare that complications from LASIK surgery uh, are really unusual and that most people like 90% or higher are really very pleased with their outcomes. How would you respond? That's all marketing. They're selling an unnecessary surgery. It's a harmful surgery. And I'm not, that's just not me saying that that's, that's after reading Many, 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 hundreds, literally hundreds of peer-reviewed papers on LASIK. The damage that LASIK does to the cornea, to the eye, they fix one thing, which is they improve your visual acuity, meaning they remove your or reduce your need for glasses. But there's a cost. It's, I mean, it's, there's a trade-off. They leave the cornea in an irregular shape, which causes all this, all these vision problems, how light focuses in an irregular fashion after the surgery. They sever corneal nerves that are um, vital to tear production. There's so many things about this surgery. I mean, there have been studies by researchers who looked at the cornea uh, under high-powered microscopes to see what the damage is after LASIK. And all corneas after LASIK are permanently damaged. And again, I don't just say that. I have scientific papers to prove it. Now, Paula, you you have gone to the Food and Drug Administration. When was that that you testified? And more recently, the FDA is apparently doing a bit of a U-turn in terms of warning people. Do you feel vindicated? So first... Tell us about your trip to the FDA and what's happening now. Back in 2008, the FDA called an advisory panel meeting to discuss LASIK issues because they had gotten some citizen petitions to stop LASIK and um, they were getting a, a lot of negative feedback. And they called the meeting and about that time, I had been reaching out to the the FDA ombudsman and trying to get involved, sending them messages, sending them emails. And I was actually invited to become a patient representative on the advisory panel back in 2008. So I went to DC for that meeting and that was my initial involvement with the FDA was at that panel meeting in 2008. And back then, I asked the FDA, I had a list of probably a dozen to 15 items that I felt like should be added to the labeling of the LASIK lasers. And I gave that information to the FDA at that time. And 
to the best of my knowledge, and I read everything, so I don't think it would have gotten past me if they'd done anything. I don't believe any of my suggestions made it into the labeling. But fast forward to 2018, was it 27 to 18? I went back to the FDA in a small setting, me and four or five other people, and we had a meeting with um, key FDA officials, about a dozen FDA officials. And I had basically the same list, 12 or 15 items that needed to be put into the labeling for the LASIK lasers. And they still hadn't been put in at that point. Now with this new draft guidance that that came out in July of last year, most of those items are in the draft guidance. Why it took, what was it, 14 years, I'll never understand. But I just hope the FDA has the spine to stand up to these laser manufacturers and to these powerful ophthalmologists and their powerful ophthalmology groups, all the lobbyists. I just hope the FDA does not let them bully them into abandoning this new guidance. I hope they see it through and enact it because it needs to happen. Paula Kofer, thank you so much for sharing your story with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Paula Kofer. She suffered complications from LASIK surgery nearly 23 years ago. In 2014, she started the LASIK Complications Support Group on Facebook. We turn now to Dr. Edward Boschnik, an optometrist with a private practice in Miami devoted to the restoration of vision lost from LASIK surgery. Dr. Boschnik has been a clinical investigator for both the FDA and several major contact lens manufacturers for over 20 years. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Edward Boschnik. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Roshnick, you are an optometrist, and you have to deal with patients who have had LASIK surgery. First of all, can you just explain briefly, how does LASIK work, and who is a good candidate for LASIK surgery? Okay. LASIK surgery involves using either a laser or a blade to create a flap uh, across the cornea, lift the flap, smooth out the underlying tissue with the laser, put the, reposition the flap again and hopefully the patient will see clearly and comfortably again. Who is a good candidate? I only see the problem patients. I don't, see, I don't get to see happy LASIK patients. So I, um, my feeling is uh, the, sur- the surgery shouldn't be done because of too many, too many problems, too many complications, and there's no way of knowing ahead of time what the ultimate result will be. Well, after many, many years, the Food and Drug Administration appears ready to warn people that there are some serious consequences. And I just wonder if you could give us a little insight on what you see in in the patients who you have had to help. What are they complaining about and what can you do for them? Okay. I've been taking care of LASIK patients since LASIK was introduced in 1993, thereabouts. And I've seen thousands of these patients. But some of the problems that we see are patients complaining of double vision, glare, starbursts, halos, reduction in contrast sensitivity, chronic dry eyes, probably the number one complaint. 
ocular pain, light sensitivity, irregular corneal surfaces. These uh, complications cannot be reversed. Additional surgeries will not take care of them. Blurred vision and distorted vision cannot be corrected with eyeglasses. Um, We use uh, specialty contact and scleral lenses, devices that we apply to the corneal surface to give the cornea a new shape, a new cornea, a new optical surface to eliminate, uh, reduce these complications, visual uh, anomalies, and to also take care of the dry eye problem. Well, Dr. Boschnik, we're wondering if pre-surgical screening would help at all, especially I'm wondering, since I heard you say that we can't predict ahead of time who is going to suffer from one of these complications, whether pre-surgical screening is going to make a difference. Well, the surgeons are going to screen to make sure the cornea has a smooth optical surface, that the patient doesn't have a, a level of myopia or astigmatism that can't be treated adequately with the laser. And they're going to screen to make sure the cornea has a proper thickness. But even though you screen for proper thickness and smooth corneal surface and moist tissue, there's still going to be problems like this. I mean, there, there are people whose lives have been destroyed. And a number of patients have, had, have committed suicide, including one of mine. So I don't have any uh, advice to patients like, you're, you're a good candidate, this person is not a good candidate. I think because of the risk factor, it shouldn't be done. It's best to avoid it, especially if you're seeing well with your eyeglasses and with your contact lenses. Is there some safe or safer form of refractive surgery, or should people just pretty much do without? I think do without. Remember, you're operating on a healthy eye. Historically, surgery has been done on diseased tissue, like an appendix or tonsils or whatever. But on the eye, you're talking about healthy corneal tissue. And I feel that you do any kind of surgery, you cannot predict ahead of time what the result will be. And no one knows what the percentage of happy patients are. Maybe after the surgery, they did a, a, a survey, maybe 95, I don't know, maybe a very high percentage of patients are happy. As the weeks and the months go by, the level of... Uh, the amount of complications, I feel, is uh, increase. And long-term studies have not been done. I'm talking about one year, two years, five, ten years out. You don't see those statistics. That's rather shocking for something that, for most people, is irreversible. So I guess the, the real crux of the question is, what are the likelihoods what what is the possibility that someone who has a perfectly fine eyesight but just wants to get rid of their glasses might have problems down the road i think that the eye surgeons the ophthalmologists and the people who make the equipment would say oh rare as hen's teeth dr boschnik it's like one in a thousand, you know, 999 people, they, they're happy as clams. But the FDA has recently suggested it may not be that, that good. That's correct. It's, it's more than what you would think. But if you go to the pharmacy and look at the uh, dry eye section at the CVS or Walgreens, pick up some of these eye drops and it'll say for post-LASIK dry eye right on the container. 
So the, if, it's, if it was rare as hen's teeth, they would not be uh, labeling it like that. But there's no way of knowing. And the surgeons are not going to keep track of uh, problems and report it to the FDA. Now, this, uh, very common for a, a LASIK surgeon to tell the patient that uh, just, just uh, stay like you are. You'll be okay. Uh, it, give it time to heal. Use these drops or whatever. Now, Dr. Boschnik, as we understand it, you and one of your patients, possibly more than one of your patients, testified to the FDA quite a while ago about the danger that LASIK represents for people's vision. How long ago Correct. was that? Yes, April of 2008. And the FDA is just now contemplating a warning. Do you have any idea why? Uh, You're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry. This is the same thing as what happened with cigarette smoking back in the 50s and 60s. So you're suggesting that um, this delay between your testimony in 2008 and here we are, 2023, maybe there was not much of an incentive to um, issue such a warning. I guess when there are more, the more people complain and, and, and um, uh, make them their, uh, their pain and uh, anxiety and issues known to the government, sooner or later, they're going to act. And that's, what's, that's what happened. That's what I think. The numbers are just overwhelming. Dr. Edward Boschnik is in private practice, devoted to the restoration of vision lost as a result of refractive eye surgery. After the break, he'll offer his advice to people who have had complications following LASIK surgery. We'll also talk with an ophthalmologist who's done LASIK surgery. What's his perspective on the proposed FDA guideline change? We'll also find out who's a good candidate and who's not. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements, cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health, made with concentrated cocoflavanol extract. More information is available at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we're discussing the pros and cons of LASIK eye surgery. We're trying to provide you a range of perspectives on this controversial topic. The FDA is poised to issue a new guidance warning prospective patients about possible complications of this procedure. Optometrist 
Edward Boschnick has a private practice in Miami devoted to the restoration of vision and comfort lost as a result of refractive eye surgery. Dr. Boschnick has been a clinical investigator for the FDA and contact lens manufacturers for over 20 years. Let's drill down a little deeper, if you don't mind, into what you actually can do for people who are complaining about dry eyes or complaining about what you described as starbursts or difficult night vision so they can no longer drive at night because of the halos. What are some of the interventions that you have used successfully? Basically, we use scleral lenses, specialty scleral lenses. These are large diameter uh, gas permeable lenses that fit over the cornea. And there's there's an interface between the back of the lens and front of the uh, front surface of the eye filled with saline solution. So the front of the eye is always in a liquid or moist environment. So we can uh, treat dry eye with this, also restore quality vision at the same time and improve comfort dramatically. Not 100%, but significantly and very often 100%. Dr. Boschnik, I'm wondering if you have any advice for people who have had LASIK surgery, are experiencing complications, how can they find a person, uh, a healthcare provider, an optometrist perhaps like yourself, who is qualified to help them overcome the problems? Well, I think it's, it'll be a good idea to find a doctor who has trained in scleral lens technology, and they could go to sclerolens.org for a list of uh, practitioners around the, around the world who specialize in scleral lenses at sclerolens.org, and they can go uh, and they can see uh, practitioners and put their their city or state in there or zip code, and they'll find somebody who's trained in that. In this country, there are probably around, I would imagine, somewhere between 50 and 100 doctors who are trained in this technology. But one thing I'll tell you, they shouldn't seek a doctor who's going to do another procedure because second procedures do not work. In my experience, they only create an additional problem. Dr. Edward Boschnick, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Well, thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Dr. Edward Boschnick. His practice in Miami, Florida, is devoted to the restoration of vision and comfort lost as a result of refractive eye surgery, including LASIK and radial keratotomy. Dr. Boschnick has been a clinical investigator for the FDA and contact lens manufacturers for over 20 years. His website is ifreedom.com. For a different perspective on LASIK surgery, we turn now to Dr. Alan Carlson. He is a professor of ophthalmology at Duke University School of Medicine, specializing in cataract, refractive, and corneal surgery. Dr. Carlson is an experienced anterior segment surgeon. He's performed over 18,000 laser vision correction procedures in his ophthalmic career. Dr. Alan Carlson. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you, Joe and Terry. Dr. Carlson, you are a professor of ophthalmology. You've done a lot of cataract surgery, refractive corneal surgeries. Uh, You've had a lot of experience. How how long have you been in this um, profession? Four decades. 
Okay, so you've seen it all. And uh, I would very much appreciate your perspective in particular today about LASIK surgery. The FDA is considering, I don't know if we could call it a new policy or some warnings, but basically they're suggesting that after all of these years, after approving LASIK surgery, that they need to warn people in advance about the possibility of double vision after surgery, the possibility that their night vision will be disturbed, that they may end up with dry eyes, some patients may have ongoing pain, and that there will be a checklist. So I wonder if you could share with our listeners your very conservative approach to performing LASIK surgery and who you reject before you accept. You bring up some very important points. And while I'm frequently, frequently hear that, you know, Alan, you, you, you've done the most LASIK surgery at Duke. I, I like to remind them that Yes, but more importantly, I've turned away the most LASIK surgery at Duke. Um, I have a very strict policy. I think these procedures are great, but they have a sweet spot. Uh, even back in the 80s, when I did radial keratotomy surgery, it was a great procedure, but for a very narrow window of people. And I think it's when people try to push the envelope with any procedure that's when you run into trouble. And I think you can do that with LASIK. I think that, you know, you, you can have problems at night. If you, for example, if you treat somebody that has a very large pupil and a very large correction, uh, there are newer treatments that might even be superior to LASIK, such as a, a fake intraocular lens, where a lens is put in between the iris and the crystalline lens. Uh, they have very good results. Uh, for smaller treatments, we're, we've moved back to uh, doing surface ablation PRK and uh, avoiding much of the dry eye issues in those cases. It's important to find out why somebody is pursuing this treatment and what their expectations are after the treatment. I tell people that it's not uncommon for you to be able to find something that you wish was better, some imperfection. But uh, it's very, very rare for someone to actually regret having the procedure. Dr. Carlson, I, I wish you would just uh, remind us all what LASIK surgery does for people. Why do they pursue it? Well, what you're trying to do is you're using the most precise laser in all of medicine, and you're reshaping the cornea so that it has a new shape and a new power that matches a properly uh, fit contact lens. And when we do this on the surface, it's called PRK or photorefractive keratectomy. When this is done under a flap, it's LASIK surgery. So it's basically the PRK under a protective flap, allowing the patient to heal more quickly but it does have some limitations, and it often does contribute to dryness, at least on the short term. Now, we have spoken earlier with an, a, a former FDA official who was involved in the approval of LASIK surgery, and he's done a 180 degree. He, he now is 
convinced that that was a mistake, that the FDA should not have approved this procedure or this equipment. And he says in part that when a surgeon, an eye surgeon such as yourself, performs this, you're actually cutting nerves in the cornea, and that is irreversible, and that is what is contributing in part to some of the complications. How would you respond uh, to Morris Wexler? Well, I would say that you certainly want to address dry eye issues in advance of doing the surgery. In fact, if a patient comes in and says, you know, I'm having trouble wearing my contact lenses because my eyes are too dry and I can't wear them, then I would address that first and maybe even try, you know, get them back into their contact lenses and see if they still want the LASIK surgery. I'm reminded of one patient who I, I, I pursued this questioning in and, and he said to me, you know, prior to my LASIK surgery, wearing my contact lenses, I used an artificial tear twice a day. Now, after the surgery, I'm using a, an artificial tear three times a day. So technically, he said, yeah, I'm using the artificial tear more, but that one extra drop per day was not really an inconvenience when he put it in the context of having to wear contact lenses. Now, when you screen patients and say, yes, you're a good candidate for LASIK surgery, or no, you're not a good candidate for LASIK surgery, what are you looking for? Well, first, we want to do a thorough eye examination after a detailed history. And the examination would include a meticulous refraction, and we'd want to know about their contact lens history. Are we getting a refraction that's reliable? Have they been out of their contact lenses long enough? And that varies from a regular routine soft lens to a astigmatism correcting so-called toric soft lens to a hard lens. Those are all important issues. Are they on, have they had any hormonal changes? A recent pregnancy? Uh, are they still lactating if that's the case? Are they on hormones for a variety of other conditions. These are important things that can create refractive instability. Then we want to know about the health of the eye. Is the eye too dry? For example, if a patient says, yeah, my eyes are getting drier. I can only wear my, I used to be able to wear my contact lenses 18 hours a day, but now it's only 14 hours a day. Well, we, we take that in perspective and realize that we're probably not dealing with the severe dry eye patient, and they're likely going to do very well with LASIK. We want to make sure that their cornea doesn't have a disease that would complicate the procedure. Various dystrophies, conditions like keratoconus or an ectasia, where the cornea would, would be prone to developing a long-term problem. We also want to know about family history even things like macular degeneration and glaucoma and other things that we want to rule out uh, before we involve uh, LASIK surgery. So if someone had uh, or might conceivably have glaucoma, for example, they would not be a good candidate for LASIK? Well, it's not that they wouldn't be a good candidate. We would just want to keep that in perspective. For example, mm -hmm. if they already had severe glaucoma, they're typically not a great candidate for uh, some of these procedures where we might have to use a topical steroid, which could further complicate the glaucoma. 
Uh, glaucoma patients often have dry eye on top of that if they're taking glaucoma medications. I'd be reluctant to do a procedure that involved uh, creating a flap. Again, that's the cutting of the nerves, which do typically regenerate over time. And so the dry eye issues that we had, say, 20, 25 years ago, are a lot better managed today. And our understanding of glaucoma is a lot better than it was, say, 25 years ago. So I wouldn't rule out glaucoma as, a, as, a contra, as an absolute contraindication, but I can think of scenarios where it would be a relative contraindication. There are critics of LASIK surgery who say, you know, just wait a minute, Dr. Carlson, this is a cosmetic procedure. You have a perfectly healthy eye, and there are glasses, you know, they, they can help your vision if you are having nearsightedness or farsightedness. We can correct that with a pair of glasses, and glasses are kind of cool these days. There are all kinds of really neat ones. Why do a procedure that is going to change the physiology of the eye, you mentioned that the nerves that are cut generally regenerate, but that presumably means that some may not. And there are some risks. There are probably people who have dry eye after LASIK surgery who didn't have dry eye beforehand. How do you respond to those critics? Well, again, I would assess the motivation behind having a surgery. I mean, I run into people in the airport all the time that run up to me and say, you won't, you won't remember me, but you did my LASIK surgery 25 years ago. Hey, I'll ask, how are you doing? It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And the other thing, too, is that in my, in my four decades of, of treating eye problems, I can't recall a really a single time where I wasn't treating an active eye infection associated with contact lenses. Contact lenses have their own risk associated with them, including some really, really serious infections, some leaving permanent scarring. And I've had a number of patients, dozens and dozens, who wish they'd gotten LASIK so that they could have avoided that infection. So it, it's important to find out what their, you know, what the goal is here. Um, there are certain athletes that have improved their, their sport, improved in their sport by not having to wear contact lenses or glasses. Uh, certain people in, uh, you know, military and law enforcement are much better off because they don't have to wear, uh, they don't have to worry about a contact lens being knocked out of their eye in, in a, combat situation. So there's a lot of highly motivated people that enjoy having this procedure. But again, I, I, I probably have turned away more patients than anybody I've ever run into because of all the things you, you raise. I was, I've, I've had the benefit of being able to offer refractive surgery in an extremely conservative setting. Dr. Carlson, in your four decades of experience, how often are people satisfied with their uh, LASIK surgery, and how often are they disappointed? Well, fortunately, it is the overwhelming majority that are satisfied. And again, there are some limitations. There are patients that I see today 
that I did LASIK surgery on over 25 years ago who now need reading glasses because they're in their 50s. And then eventually people people will get cataracts as well. So, you know, we deal with them at each stage of life. And it's very fortunate that most people uh, are very satisfied. Uh, but But I also say it's not uncommon for somebody to be able to find something that they wish was better. And that could be, in some cases, some patients need a slight correction when they drive at night, for example. Uh, But that's much better than they were before the surgery when they had very thick glasses or wearing contact lenses at the end of the day, those types of situations. And how many patients do you run into who complain about dry eyes after LASIK surgery? Well, I tell everybody that you're going to get a dry eye immediately after surgery. And and that may last for typically several weeks, maybe up to three months. Our ability to treat dry eye now, though, is so much better. Our recognition uh, of the complexity of the tear film and the fact that it's not simply uh, a quantity issue of tear production, but also a tear film instability. And our ability to better stabilize the tear film, replace the tear film, uh, and and treat some of the underlying problems that lead to dry eye so that the LASIK surgery can be, you know, be very successful. And summing up, your recommendations if, uh, if a patient were to come into your office and say, well, Dr. Carlson, I've been thinking about LASIK surgery. What are the pros? What are the cons? What would you say? Well, it, again, it depends on their lifestyle. Uh, if, if they're not having any problems with glasses or contacts and their lifestyle, their life quality of life would not be that much better with LASIK surgery, I might talk them out of it. But if they're a very active lifestyle, they're typically if they're younger, uh, sports-oriented, uh, do a lot of uh, – uh, driving, or if they fly airplanes and things like that, high-quality refractive surgery can really improve their quality of existence. Dr. Alan Carlson, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you both. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Carlson. He's professor of ophthalmology at Duke University School of Medicine, specializing in cataract, refractive, and corneal surgery. Dr. Carlson is an experienced anterior segment surgeon. He's performed over 18,000 laser vision correction procedures in his ophthalmic career. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. The People's Pharmacy is also supported by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information available at cocovia.com. 
Today's show is number 1,337. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you also get regular access to our weekly podcast and can find out ahead of time which topics we're covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.